Blog Talk Radio. folk in quarantine land. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. Uh, I am currently live on location uh, in, in my courtyard in Hell's Kitchen that I'm so lucky to have, uh, and, and I'm not going any farther than that outside of my front door this evening. Uh, without further ado, let me go around to the, uh, the brain trust of a Metsian podcast, and we'll start with uh, Mike Lacolot in Brooklyn. What's going on, Mike? What's happening, kid? You know, just chugging along. Everything's well, I guess. Yeah, that's all we can do is guess right now. Uh, Rich, in Connecticut, what's going on, man? Well, uh, a lot of firsts, you know. Unfortunately, they're not good firsts. You know, first time Easter, no family, no traditional services in the church. You know, just cutting new ground all around and... Um, and you know, I wish I could say I wish I could say it's cutting new ground with new and exciting stuff, but just um, it's doing things in a different way to try to stay healthy, and, and that's really where we are. Yeah, and you know, and a happy Easter uh, to all of you celebrating. Uh, it, it has been uh, a weird holiday season, which uh, you know April certainly is, and I, I uh, we're you know still celebrating Passover over here, um, and. It, it's it's crazy. So so without further ado, without going deep into Mets stuff right now, you know we have, we have some things to talk about. There's some questions from the Twitterverse. Um, but first, let's get a little you know quarantine update, uh, of, if you will. Um, now, now going to Mike, uh, being essential, you're out uh, in in the open. What are you seeing out there as the numbers have spiked real quick uh, recently? You know, on a day-to-day, some days are busier than others. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's pretty quiet out there, and the mood on the streets is actually pretty good. Uh, but it is what it is. I mean, the true test is in the days coming up. Uh, as the weather gets nicer, you know, people are going to be more itchy and inclined to go outside, and let's see what happens. Uh but for the most part, you know, everyone's following orders and, and, you know, complying, and it's a good thing. And a lot of people, if not most people, I can't say all, you know, you see them with their gloves and their masks, uh, improvised or otherwise. Uh, so, you know, we ne- we nev- we've never been through this. So uh, you can only go through this with, with an open mind and judge what you see and, uh, you know, be willing to lend a helping hand where needed. That's right. Uh, you know, Rich, we talked about what Milford's going through up there um, last week and, and how you, how are you, you know, what are you seeing right now? Do you, are you able to get out at least for some fresh air on a daily basis? I am, you know, it's, um, a lot of coastline here, so you know, a lot of beaches. And as long as you keep – it's funny, all the beaches have the sign, 
remember social distance, keep six feet apart, you know, so people run, people bike, people walk a lot. So getting out isn't a problem, um, you know, and you're pretty much able to stay socially distant, which is also good. But what I find, I'll just give a quick example here of, of what infuriates me. So, you know, the town I'm in is like, okay, you know, stay six feet apart, signs everywhere, great. You know, one town over, they give $100 citations if you're not six feet apart. And, um, and they're really giving them out. So my point is, if we really want to, you know, go full bore on this thing, just do that. You know, make it so it's one consistent set of rules. Make them stringent rules and say, look, we're not messing around here, you know, but we don't have that here. Um, I think for the most part, people are complying. You know, you do see some examples of um, they've shut the parks down, they've shut the basketball courts down, you know, anything that would that would force people to get together. Um, but you still hear anecdotally about people getting together at people's houses and stuff. So, you know, while I guess in summary, for the most part, people are following the guidance, I wish it were more uniform. I wish it were more consistently enforced. Uh, but that's where we are right now. You know, Mike, I heard somebody bring up to me that, you know, generally speaking, you do want to get some fresh air to get better. You you don't always want to be cooped up. You need fresh air to to get healthy. Obviously, the idea is that you can't be spreading it to other people. Um, so what, what, what is your opinion about people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm passing on the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway. I'm seeing, you know, people at least taking a walk. Obviously, you, you have plenty of people riding and biking and, and running. Uh, but, but, you know, just people taking, uh, you know, going for a walk, uh, it, you know, is, is, that, is there any harm to that? Well, no, you know, keep your distance. Uh, and right now, as they say, that's our safest way to combat this. Uh, you need to get out. You need fresh air. Absolutely. It's healthy for us. Uh, so is sunlight, <laughs> you know. Uh, but what I would say is improvise. If you need to get on your bike, instead of going, you know, to the bike path along the water, go around your block. Go the opposite way and go where the people aren't. It's not going to take away from your bicycling exercise, but stay away from where people are uh, congregated. You understand? So improvise and, and, you know, go against your natural inclinations because that's what's most being challenged here is our natural instincts, you know, as free-range Americans. Uh, so that's what I'm saying you know go out take a walk around the block why does it have to be you know and I speak from from Brooklyn I I live close to the waterfront over here Uh, so you know I use that as an example instead of populating the waterfront like I say go around your block uh, and improvise and, and, and do it that way. And if anything, go up and down the stairs in your backyard. You know, uh, just go against what we would ordinarily do because these are not ordinary times. Uh, whatever we're doing, we can certainly do better. You know what I mean? So Rich, how close? That's, that's what I emphasize, improvise. 
Rich, how close to the beach are you guys? How how far is a walk to the beach? It's a stone's throw. It's like a five minute walk down there, and um, and it's you know one of the more popular beaches in the area. And so, in the beginning, you know, like four weeks ago, you would see the people. I almost said the word idiots out there congregating, and uh, and even though it was cooler weather, they'd all be hanging out, you know, in the parking lot and everything. And you see less of that now because the signs are up. I think people are getting a little more in tune to it. But, yeah, I mean, just like Mike, very, very short walk to the beach, very popular beach, and um, it's a place where everybody goes to watch the fireworks and stuff at the 4th of July. And it, and Mike's right. You know, you it, you have to go against your instinct. You know, when you live in an area where there's beach, you go to – that's why you live here. You go to the beach, but you have to fight that. And when I personally go for runs, I've been going to the local high school at, like, 7 in the morning and running on the track. There's nobody there. And um, when I go on a bike ride, I go at 7 in the morning, and I keep my distance. You know, the same thing Mike said. We, we just have to hope that, that other people get that message and that things start to flatten out because – it's all we've got. You know, it, it's all we've got. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a proven treatment. Even if there is a proven treatment, you don't want to get the thing to a point where you need that treatment. So um, it, it's wild, you know, because in 2020, medicine has come so far. But we have something out there that we can't do anything about at this point. The only thing we could do is, is stay away from each other. And, and it seems so prehistoric. It seems so primitive in thinking. But but it's really all we can do, and and, um, and it's funny how the simplest things to do are the hardest for us. You know, it, it, think about what we've talked about the last 10 minutes. We've talked about the uptake of it. So the government, you know, the, and the CDC says stay apart, you know, socially distant, don't get together. Okay, for the most part, people are doing that. But there are some who still aren't. We can't execute the simple things. And, um and let's hope that we can do it and, you know, we start to see some positive results and we should do it more, not less. And I don't know, I just I guess my summary statement is it's weird in this day and age when, you know, we could take valves from pigs and put them into humans and save people's lives. We can't um we can't, we can't stay home because that's the only thing we've got. It's it's just so weird. I guess that's my summary statement. It's just weird. Yeah, you know, I I think more than anything um People do need to stay six feet apart, but wear gloves, wear masks, and understand that you're not wearing a glove or a mask to prevent you from getting it. You're preventing other people from catching it from you who might not know that you have it. And so the the one thing that I, I, I want to stress about the six feet uh, is that I don't think people need to freak out if there is a moment when you are not six feet apart, just make sure those gloves and those uh, 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 that those masks are being worn, um, and and just get by each other as fast as as humanly possible. I, I've just I've seen it where people I, I I don't want people to change fully the psychology of what happens when you cross somebody else, because right now you see uh, you see somebody. Like some some people get very very tentative and freak out and and be you know just just worried sick and and it's funny the way that phrase you know how that goes um, it's 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 uh, you know that that is that's part of it too it it it, it helps to stay I, I don't know whether trying to be happy helps the immune system but I'm gonna say that it does and trying to just keep yourself 
in check. Keep yourself less stressed. We're all trying to get through this together. Don't freak out on one another. And, and unfortunately, it's not just the people standing in lines at certain places that I've seen it, but I've also seen it amongst some of the delivery people that I'm around. Uh, when you're at a certain restaurant that is very uh, uh, popular, and and unfortunately, there's not enough people probably being staffed by some of these these places uh, during this entire thing. And so you have uh, not only is the food behind, but also you have all, all these delivery guys that are already getting these orders swarming the place at 10, 20 at at a time. Like you know, so I can understand how when you only have one person having to deal with 20 delivery people. Uh, you know, just being like everybody, let's just take it easy, and somebody freaking out on him. You know, I side with that that one guy who told me uh, at this one particular place, yeah, man, those delivery those deliveries are going to be an hour, and I decided not to take those deliveries because I wasn't going to be waiting an hour when I had another delivery to go. That was that's all the exchange needed to be, and then I saw this other guy freak out on the guy, and and it's just everybody just needs to stay calm and carry on. Uh, or uh, as as so many different renditions, including ours, comes comes into play when you Google it. Stay calm and let's go Mets. And without further ado, let's go over to some baseball talk. Uh, um, before we get to the questions, we we wanted to talk about some of these ideas that are that are being thrown out there uh, in terms of MLB's latest plan uh, with the the 2020 season um, and what we are, are, are possibly thinking we would do if we were the brain trust of MLB. So uh, I'll go over to Rich first. And, and before we get to our ideas, if you could kind of dissect exactly what MLB was talking about the other day. Sure. So the original plan, I'm not sure it was a plan, but the original discussion that leaked about uh, 10 days ago, was everybody goes to Arizona and, you know, sequesters, uh, players don't see their families, and you, you know, play in the rotating circuit in Arizona. The thought behind it was um, use the Arizona spring training facilities, which are geographically closer than the Florida ones. So this way, you know, you wouldn't have travel. You could get, or you wouldn't have long travel. You can get a lot of games in in a short period of time. Uh, so that was the original plan. And, uh, so then they improved upon that plan. So I think they improved upon the plan with the current one, which is have two leagues, have the Grapefruit League and have the Cactus League, right? And so you would break each league up into three divisions. There's roughly the same number of teams that train in Florida and Arizona. So what you would do is you would break Florida into thirds, and you would say, like, the Mets train near the Nationals. They train near the, uh, the Astros, actually share a facility and the Marlins and the Cardinals, they'd be one division. And then on the west coast of Florida, you've got you know, the Phillies, the Yankees, some other teams, I think the Twins are over there. Then you have the, uh, like the, the other area of Florida where the Red Sox are. So you'd break it into three divisions. Um, you do the same in Arizona. And you'd play the teams in your division. You'd play them a lot. I don't, know what the, I don't think they have a number. You'd play them a lot. And then you'd play the teams in the other two divisions less, but you would play them. Um, and then you'd have as many games as you possibly could, figure out a playoff format. You know, it might not be uh, just the division winners. It might be the top two or whatever. And you do the same, of course, in Arizona. Work it out and then play a world, uh, playoffs in a World Series. And um, so you wouldn't have American League and National League. You'd have um, special considerations for the COVID-19 pandemic. And everybody would have to agree that, you know, this year, well, I don't know if you want to call it asterisks or, asterisks or whatever, 
but there would be a World Series, and whatever happens, happens. That team would win an official World Series. So, and oh, they would also be sequestered, by the way. No family, no fans in either scenario that I mentioned. No, no, none of that. So, um, and then the, the little tweak on it that I heard, I think, yesterday is that the thought is that they would never return to their, not, not never, but not this year, return to their traditional park. So they would just say, this is it. We're playing in Florida and Arizona. There won't be any games any other place. Um, and that's the plan. That's the plan, uh, you know, the original one for Arizona, the modified one for the two leagues. Um, you think about that, there's a lot to talk about there, uh, not the least of which being statistics, right? I mean, all these guys are going to have all these different statistics because they're playing different competition this year. And I don't know. There's so much to talk about with it, but that's the summary. I mean, okay. Mike, let's go to you first. First of all, number one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down into two questions. Number one, can you call it a World Series at all? And can you accept the idea of the winner getting that specific trophy, number one? Number two, it's the idea that this is going to count towards the record books, numbers-wise. Can, can that really I, – I, to me, I think it's a wash. And you just got to – got to roll over. deal with the World Series first. Uh, I was the one who asked you guys to come up with a very original and creative plan uh, insofar as rescuing this season. Uh, And in my plan, I I would have to rename it and call it the North American Championship. It will not be the World Series. This is a very uncommon season, so it has to be treated as such. you know, convention and tradition are out the window. So uh, I would suggest we have fun. How different you want to make this, you know, I'm completely open to. So, no, it would not be a World Series. Uh, To me, it would be, you know, for 2020, they're playing for the North American Championship uh, because they have Toronto in there. Otherwise, I would have said, you know, they're playing for the American Championship. Stats... Uh, I would count them. Uh, no matter what kind of season they wanted up playing against whom, uh, that matters not to me. Uh, you know, hits divided by a bats equal average. You know, uh, that that just that that stands by itself. Uh, I would I would definitely uh, count the stats, uh, but you have to keep everything within context. Obviously, the season's going to be one giant asterisk, uh, and it'll, it'll have to be treated that way uh, now and in the future and by historians. Rich, um, before you finish with your idea, uh, what is your take on, on all of that I presented to Mike? Uh, um, and, you know, piggyback off of, uh, piggyback, piggyback, piggyback off of uh, anything he said. Well, I guess if everybody agreed, the Player Association and Major League Baseball agreed that it would be the World Series, right? We're, we're playing. These are the rules. Everybody's playing under the same rules. You're going to get there one way or the other. So, in other words, whatever the rules are, you know, the top two, top two teams in each division play off, or top 
division winners and then um, and then one wild card, whatever it is. Everybody understands the rules going in. Everybody plays under the same rules. And then it's a World Series with an asterisk. I, I don't think it means that the team that wins should be diminished. I think there just has to be noted that, you know, 30 years from now we look back and go, oh, yeah, that was the year that, you know, the pandemic happened and, and they morphed the rules a bit. But I honestly, I think you can call it a World Series victory because it's the same teams playing. They're not playing the same schedule, but, you know, they're major league teams. Everybody would agree to it and would have to agree. And then you go with it. And um, what, where I think it would be messed up would be the statistics. I think that really, really matters. Um, because think about it. You know, um, maybe Pete Alonzo, when his career is over, would have achieved something, right? And because they played a shortened season, we're not talking about – it would be significantly shortened, probably 80 games or so. Um, and we can talk about timing in a minute. But So Pete would have – he would have had a season that was half a season or, you know, two-thirds of a season or whatever it is. And it would impact statistics. And maybe, you know, his career statistics would be somehow impacted on that. And um, – and, again, you're going to play one round of competition this year, different competition last year, different competition going forward. So it does throw a monkey wrench in a lot of things like that. Um, and then you have to think about things like service time for players. You know, do they get it? They'd have to work all that stuff out. So I guess, unlike Mike, I'm okay with the concept of calling it a World Series victory because of the fact that everybody knows the rules going in, everybody plays by the same rules. I just think all the other stuff, is where I would have a concern, whether it's, you know, statistics, whether it's service time, whether it's Super 2 status, any of that stuff. How do you figure all that stuff out in a year when, you know, think about the strike the strike shortened season. You had a half and a half, but you played in your, you know, none of this other stuff. You had two half seasons that were shorter, but you played your traditional competition. This would be not only would it be a lot shorter, you'd, you'd be doing weird stuff. I mean, the Mets division, in case you didn't see it, the Mets division would be the Mets, the Nationals, the Astros. Isn't it just the Mets luck that they would get the two World Series team from last year, right? So the Mets, the Nationals, the Astros, the Cardinals, another tough team, and the Marlins. So that would be the Mets division. So that the competition you're playing would just be wacky. But – you know, and then I'll throw one thing more in for you guys to talk about. I'm not sure if you saw Ryan Zimmerman's comments yesterday. Um, a lot of the players seem a bit uncomfortable with the idea of being away from their families. I'll give you two. Zach Wheeler said, there's no way I'm missing the birth of my child. It's going to be my first child. So he's like, he wants some part of it. Um, and then there's Ryan Zimmerman who said, is baseball really that important? Like, why are we talking about this? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Why are we talking about contingency plans to play baseball in empty stadiums? Don't we have other things to worry about as a nation? So, you know, the player reaction is lukewarm at best. Um, and so I'll let you guys kind of chew on that a little bit. Well, it sounds like the players want to take the year off based off of what you just said. Uh, generally speaking, or, or at least they want to play it by ear. They don't even want to have the conversation right now. Um, I think, and I'll throw this out to you, to you Mike, first, um, that it would be a ratings bonanza if the only way we could watch baseball. I mean, because, you, you know, the, the, the giddy part of me, 
wants to see it any way possible and knows that while we're watching it, we would be, I mean, especially like the players would eventually get into it. I mean, there would be, I mean, there's the high fives you have to think about. There are, there are, you know, and that is the problem. And that's where you kind of think to yourself that it might be a wash. And, um, but at the same time, Mike, they, they would get a lot of eyeballs on baseball most likely. You ask anybody who's played little league, high school, college, you know, uh, traveling teams, anything of that nature. Many, many, many games with nobody in sight, just you and the opponent. And the intensity was no less whether you were playing in front of no one, in front of yourselves, or a couple of hundred or even a couple of thousand people. Uh, I don't think major leaguers... uh, have strayed that much, they can't recapture those days when they played in front of no people. Uh, I think that's easy to do. And as far as TV, everyone's going to be home. Everyone's going to be starving for it. Everyone's going to watch. Uh, ratings are going to go through the roof. Uh, I think that's the given. You know, and camera angles as they are now, you know, we're not looking at the crowd per se where zeroed in on the pitcher or the batter and the pitcher and the batter or a certain play. Uh, so that's really not going to change. I don't think the product, the TV product, is really going to change all that much outside of, you know, crowd noise and, and you know, minutia like that. So, Well, how do, you deal with, uh, how do you deal with the broadcasters? Uh... <laughs> Are they going to be on location? Just let them do their job. Just let them do their job. Another day at the office. Rich, are they going to be on location? Is this is this where you like all these different questions you have to ask when when it comes to getting back to work here? Well, I, I, my opinion, and I know this this gets to what we wanted to talk about was our own thoughts on how we would do this. Um, I. I t- I think I mentioned this in last week's show. I tweeted when this first happened, like in the middle of March, my idea, and my idea really hasn't changed, is that you have to test everybody every day. Um, and so you do it, you know, obviously no fans, that's key. And I'm sorry, but every player walking in has to be tested because one positive test, we know what happens when you have one positive person around. Just look at New York City. It spreads pretty quickly. So you test everybody every day, and then you go for it. You just, you know, you you. Do it if you can and, and see what happens if that's what everybody wants to do. But to answer your question, I think to add that level of authenticity to it, you, you have to have the broadcasters there. I think it would be incredibly weird because you, all you're going to have is broadcast. You're not going to have anybody in the ballpark. So you, you'd want to have the, the broadcast at least have some crowd, uh, not crowd noise, but sound noise on bat on ball and stuff. And everybody gets tested, whether you're an umpire, you're a player, you're a coach, you're a broadcaster. You get tested every day, and it, it seems onerous, but there is no other way to do it that I could think of. Because, you know, somebody was saying, um, like John Pielli said last week, you know, you think about if you're not doing that, and then you've got a runner on first, you know, you have the first baseman, you have the runner, you have the first base coach, the umpire, all standing around on top of each other. So, you can't have that mystery about, well, do you have it? You know, why are you breathing on me? Well, you can't have that. You test every day. As long as you're negative, you can enter the ballpark. Whether you're Gary Cohen, whether you're Pete Alonzo, whether you're Angel Hernandez, it doesn't matter. 
you get tested, and, and I, I've never been tested, but I understand those tests are quite uncomfortable. They stick the darn thing up your nose. But how, what else can you do? You can't leave any of this to chance because one person having it means everybody's, or a lot of people are going to have it very quickly. So, um, so that's my thought, is uh, the only way you could do this is daily testing. Um, I do think you should try to authenticate it as best as possible. So I think the broadcaster should be on site, you know, your Howie Roses and, uh, and Wayne and, and Gary, Keith, and Ron, and, of course, the other team's broadcasters, too. It would be, I think, be just too weird to have them do it from the studio. So that's my thought. Yeah, uh, you have been listening to a Metzian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike, uh, the 50th edition, which we will get to later in terms of uniform numbers. But uh, without further ado, you know, Mike, uh, elaborate on how you would go about this entire thing, and, and then I will follow through. Well, we're obviously separating ourselves from reality. You know, and I asked you guys to get creative with your answers. Uh, some of this may not be feasible at all, you know, fantasy even. Uh, but nevertheless, I don't want anybody getting hurt. I think the season's compromised as it is. Sam, you brought up a good point. I think most of the players want the year off. So, you know, if I was able to wave a magic wand, this is what I would do. Instead of, you know, creating a small village in Arizona, here's my plan. I, I would utilize full 40-man rosters. Uh, all 40 men are available to you. What I would do, instead of camping everyone in Arizona, I would split this up into three regional divisions, the West, the Central, and the East. In the West, I've chosen the cities of San Francisco and Oakland because they have two major league facilities that can be utilized. And if you have three 10-team divisions, two major league stadiums can facilitate two and a third game per day. In the Central, I picked Chicago. Again, two major leagues. Uh, stadiums at their disposal at their disposal and in the east New York City two major league stadiums at their disposal in the west my division consists of Colorado Oakland, San Francisco the Dodgers, the Angels Seattle, Houston, Texas Arizona and San Diego in the central Minnesota, Kansas City Detroit, the White Sox Cincinnati, Cleveland, the Cubs, St. Louis, Milwaukee, and Toronto. In the East, the Mets, the Yankees, Red Sox, Philly, the Braves, Miami, Tampa, Baltimore, Washington, and Pittsburgh. You play each team within your division 11 times. That's 99 games. My season would start on July 1st torn between seven-inning and nine-inning games. I think I'm leaning more towards seven-inning games. And all this goes against my baseball sensibilities. You know, under normal circumstances, all of this would make me break out into a rash. But here we are, a 99-game season. You play each team 11 times. 
nine games within the division against your uh, opponents, 10 teams per division, nine, 99-game season. My season would start on July 1st. Every other Monday is a day off. Every Saturday would be a seven-inning doubleheader. I will not allow players, positional players, to play more than five games per week. And I will not allow pitchers, if we're playing seven-inning games, to go more than four innings, starting pitchers, to go more than four innings. Again, we're uh, we're utilizing a full 40-man roster. Any and all rule changes you want to invite into the game, electronic, strike zone, uh, any of that, bring it on. DH, bring it on. Obviously, you can have mixed culture here, so you're going to have to anyway. Uh, And get all your yaya's out now, Mr. Manfred, because I don't want any of this bleeding over into the 2021 season. So, you know, if you have ideas, implement them now. Empty out everything that you got and and make it happen. Uh, The only (laughs) thing I would do is limit. Yeah, no, really. If you're going to do it, do it now. No, I like it. Twenty C twenty twenty is a guinea pig. And exactly. And uh the only thing I would say is limit challenges. I mean, I don't even want challenges. I don't even want instant replay anymore. Here's another thing. Put the eye in the sky. There you go. Put the eye in the sky for these games and eliminate instant replay. The eye in the sky is wired into the crew chief. All matters are resolved instantaneously. There is no challenge. But if you're not that creative and if you really don't want to advance your game, well, then limit challenges to three, period. You get three challenges. That's it. Otherwise, we're moving on. But like I said, DH, you name it, you got it. Starting pitchers, no more than four innings for seven inning games. No player shall play more than five games per week. You play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a doubleheader on Saturday and Sunday. And you're off every other Monday. That affords players six days off in a three-month period. Uh, as, and as opposed to we're dealing with a 40-man roster, as opposed to assembling 1,200 people in one place, you know, generally speaking, you're dispersing 400 people in three different locations. This is fantasy but I've chosen three locations that have two major league stadiums available. Uh, I don't want to see major league players playing in spring training in minor league facilities. It's not what they do. So that's, uh, and that speaks nothing of crowds and and actually being there to witness this. Uh, I guess that's a different subject. Uh, And lastly, I will say that I don't believe they should have a season. Uh, I think even discussing it at this stage is pure folly. They should be taking this day by day and let the information dictate their future course. You know, and to say, obviously, these are all leaks uh, coming out in terms of these ideas. So, of course, you know, they're they're getting ready for uh, many different options, many different scenarios. I would probably break it down even further with my idea because it would kind of be a, a, a test 
you know, kind of a, a guinea pig for if they were to ever get rid of American and National League and make it into regions. Um, I would say make it four divisions of regions, basically southeast, southwest, northwest, northeast, um, uh, and maybe even break it down into six divisions where you have the central and then maybe, I guess, Texas and, and the Cardinals are in sub, you know, uh, uh, with some of the Texas teams, if you will. But but I, I would say Colorado would probably sneak into the northwest just because you'd have to – uh, um, try to make it a little bit more even. If you were to have San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, uh, you'd probably need one more team. Um, and th- this is where it's just all pure fantasy. It just has to do with being close within regions to each other, where you're you're no more than a, than you know a, a two hour or less than that flight uh, with your with your you know sanitized charters. Um, that you know, I I wouldn't necessarily want to call it the World Series. Uh, uh, then again, I understand the asterisk always being there uh, because you know. But then again, like it could be a North American Championship, and then you know next year is the whatever this year would have been. I guess it's 112, 113th World Series or whatever. Uh, but maybe because it's compromised, um, all those seasons, generally speaking, had more than you know 150. 35 games or whatever 1995 was um, there, there was still enough of the season with uh, 1995 and, and 1981 in particular as well uh, enough of the season to call it a, uh, a World Series so this is just a completely different thing uh, which is why I do lean more towards calling it something like Mike threw out there a North American championship and then you know having next year be what you were going to call this 2020 World Series, and, and I'm totally spacing on it uh, currently. But, um, yeah, that's that, that's basically what I would do, but obviously it just sounds like no, nothing within uh, regions can really happen right now. So, again, it's, it's all pure fantasy, and I, a part of me would rather take it off just one way or, the, uh, or another, um, no matter what the numbers look like by July, especially because it sounds like we're going to have to combat this. Uh, we're going to have to be working around the clock to make sure that we don't have uh, the same thing kick back here next November and December. So, um, you know, it, it's it's an unfortunate thing, but uh, it 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 is you know what it is. Um, I I vote no season. If if to to finish this subject, uh, I vote no season. What about you, Rich? Well, it's starting. You know, you you, you mentioned something. Mike mentioned forty-man rosters, and that's a big factor because what, there would be no minor league season, right? How could you? And if you're trying to confine everybody to one place, you can't have minor leagues playing somewhere everywhere. So, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean if you start losing players, you're done? You, you know, you can't like softball. I mean, you don't have enough guys, you have to forfeit. Uh, maybe you have a forty-man roster. True. Uh, but still, you know, what if you have a rash of injuries that you just have nowhere to go? And um, so that, that's something to think about. But to answer your question, Sam, um, I'm not ready to throw the towel in yet because I do think that um, if you could get the players to agree to it and then the owners to agree to it and make it, you know, and, of course, a CDC, that that's like the first step. You have to have the clear, all clear from the CDC or clear enough to play under, under certain conditions. 
I'm not willing to throw the towel in yet, only because I do think it would be a big part of healing. I think um, if everybody could stay healthy and everybody would agree to it, I'm not willing to throw it out just yet. I'm willing to keep, let's keep kicking around ideas. Let's keep improving upon ideas and see if something can work and if everything works together to a point where, you know, the CDC says it's okay, you know, the thing's under control, the plan is workable and it's agreeable to all. Maybe that's a fantasy. Maybe it's a long shot. But, again, I'm not willing to, to call it just yet because I do think um, it's a part of who we are and be a big part of healing. So I, that's where I am with it. Mike, sounds like you're leaning for just canceling the season. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this in mid-April. Uh, I don't think this should be topical just yet, you know. Talk to me in two weeks. Let's see how things change. Talk to me in a month. How much time would they need uh, to get into game shape, you know? And then what kind of a season are we talking about? So there's, there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into this. Right now, I think you got a bunch of capitalists just chasing down the dollar. <laughs> uh, so we just have to wait and see. No, I'm not in favor of the season, but if you're going to do it, you know, they're going to have to do it as wisely as possible. Yeah, exactly. And and none of us really have uh, the, the answer for that. And most likely there's not going to be anybody um, completely satisfied with whatever they decide to do. Uh, you know, it's going to be sad, but it in, in some fashion it, it, it is nice to – you know, obviously not, not, uh, it's one of those, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play type of things, but it has been nice to recollect to, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of this stuff that, that we do take for granted having happened. And, and just, you know, Mike, you and I have been talking about, uh, October 4th, 1955, the Dodgers winning their first ever Brooklyn championship and their only Brooklyn championship. And, you know, that was literally like, you know, less than a three-hour window of time that is recalled and, as, as you know, is tried to recall as much as possible. And, and you know, you and I were talking about uh, something that, that I uh, caught that nobody really talks about much is that a fan ran out to uh, future Met Duke Snyder uh, in, in like the seventh inning or something and, and got escorted out of Yankee Stadium. So, you know, there is something to be said, uh, whether you're, you're into it or not. You know, I know, Rich, you don't really like to watch these or listen to these games again. But at the same time, you know, uh, and I'll go to you first, Mike. Um, I keep going back and forth, but I'll go to you first, Mike. Um, there is something to be said about remembering how, how rich of a history all of these sports have. I, I love the history, you know. I'm a sucker for it, so. You got me either way. I'm there, you know. I'll listen, I'll read, I'll watch, uh, you name it. So I'm a sucker for history, baseball history. And, and Rich, you know, even if you might not be, you know, going to to some of these games uh, that, that they're recalling all that often, uh, it's still out there, you know. People are bringing up the fact that Bar- they're showing Bartolo's game again or, or – Pete Alonzo getting his shirt ripped off, or whichever game they're replaying, you know it's out there. Yeah, no, uh, believe me, I, I I appreciate the history, and I 
while I might not watch the, the game replays for some, I don't know why my DNA just doesn't work for me personally. Um, but I appreciate the history of it all and, and what it means. And think about what we're talking about. That that was my point on why, you know, don't throw in the towel on the season yet because it means a lot. You know, it it, it means a lot to a lot of people. And um, if you know, think about that 1955 World Series. Well, you know, that's what 65 years ago now. And we're still talking about it. I mean, these are things that, that, while they're not the only thing that define us, you know, our families and our kids and everything else, jobs and all that define us as people, but, but this does too. It, it's a big part of who we are. Um, I know there are people out there who don't like sports. I get it. But I think a lot more people do like at least one sport. And, um, and there are historical markers. You know, you think about it, uh, Jackie Robinson, it happened in a sporting event, but it was a big part of civil rights and, and you know, things moving forward. And, and, you know, sports contributed to that. So um, believe me, I, I totally appreciate the role sports has for us. And the fact that we could talk about games from 65 years ago speaks to that. And, um, you know, Jackie Robinson game is even farther back than that. So, um, yeah, I, I get the big picture. While even while I might not watch individual games, believe me, I, I get the impact in the big picture. Um, before we get to some of that uh, Jackie Robinson recollection, because uh, the anniversary of his game, uh, of his first game, is coming up soon. But, um, Rich, I'm going to go to you first with this. And I just I couldn't get through much of it. And, and maybe I'll try a little bit more. But SNY streamed. And I'm not sure who was playing. And maybe you, you have an idea of this. But, but they're starting to stream MLB The Show. Are these players playing out there? Or are they just simulating games on video on, on the video game, randomly? Well, no, there are players playing the video game, and I believe, and I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know Jeff McNeil was playing from the Mets. So MLB players are, you know, at the controls, I assume, in their own homes, playing these games, and in some cases they're being broadcast, you know, by broadcasters. Uh, it, it's you know it's cute I guess if you want. I haven't watched any of it but um, but I know it was on the other night at like nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night it was on. So, so and, uh, but but the the, broad, the broadcasters are the I'm sorry just to reiterate just to ask uh, uh, the, like Matt Vesturgeon and Dan Slezak and and the ones who are who are talking they're not actually like they're only doing like the simulation that they've recorded correct. Like, we're not actually yeah. hearing them broadcast these. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know because I haven't watched it, but my understanding was they were being broadcast as if they were real games. Like, in other words, uh, Matt Vaskirgen, you know, here's a ground ball to short, you know, and, uh, you know, whoever makes the play, you know, and uh, throws it over uh, to first. I, I think that's what was happening, but I haven't watched it. But I know Jeff McNeil is definitely uh, – See, I, I thought that it just sounded like, oh, wow, they've really gotten sharp with the, 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 the dialogue in these video games. Um, Mike, what, what is, would you be able to get through one of these, watching one of these? No, not at all. Not at all. Tell me up. Next. You know, I think it might have been it might have been in like the Pete Alonzo swing where like they, they, they definitely had his um, – his like stance down, but there was uh, just something I'll, a little too digitally for for his swing for me. I'll be the one playing straight amount of baseball in the corner. 
Now, Rich, would you watch? Would you watch a broadcast of two people playing Stratomatic baseball? Probably not. No. Um, but uh, <laughs> but now, think about what we're talking about. You know, we're so desperate for this stuff. Maybe not the three of us, or to varying degrees, the three of us. But society in general, the fact that there's a market for Jeff McNeil sitting in his in his base in his man cave. <laughs> playing a, a video game and having other people watch this happen shows you just how important it is. And um, now he, maybe, maybe important is not the right word. Impactful, which maybe is the right word. How much of an impact this now, stuff has it that we're willing to go to these, these heights? Now, here's, here's the only way, and this is where I didn't, and probably why it didn't hook me, because they did something uh, during spring training when we had a spring training where they, they had the uh, – the players actually commentating during spring training games because they're just spring training games. But if, if you were broadcasting with them, just kind of color commenting the entire time that I could get behind any, any, either of you want to take it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a comment on that. I, and, and I remember it was, a, I typically work from home on Wednesdays and Fridays. It was a Wednesday afternoon. So I had the game on. And Pete Alonzo was mic'd up. And, and it was just everybody loved it at the end. I mean, watching Twitter, like, this is the greatest thing ever. They need to do more of this. Um, do it during the season. It's a way to bring baseball closer to people to see, you know, their real reactions. Maybe. I'm not saying no. But at the same time, it was weird. I mean, it was weird. And, and a few, you know, words that shouldn't get on TV got on TV. But that's going to happen. You know, how you can't expect these guys to become different people because they have a mic on. They're still in the midst of a competitive game. This is a spring training game. Um, I, I don't know. You know, as baseball does whatever it can to try to get closer to people, you know, and bring in the younger fans. We've talked about that a few times. Um, this idea of miking players during the game, again, you know, other teams did it during spring training. It's just bizarre, you know, to hear – to hear the guy, like the conversation at first base with the, with the coach, he might say something to the, to the runner. Um, what he says is he's pounding his glove when, you know, when the pitcher's about to pitch, you know, watch this, he's going, you know, whatever. On the one hand, it was sort of like an insight into what that's really like, but on the other, I don't know, I just found it weird. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think some of it certainly came across funny, you know, uh, especially when Dominic Smith kind of uh, joshed, uh, J.D. Smith about being part of the Astros. Uh, that was that was pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, no, I I think that one way or in, one way or another, we're all craving baseball right now. And even I couldn't watch MLB the Show. You know, I probably play it if I had it, but I don't have a PS4, and I have no desire just to go out there and get a PS4 solely. And this would literally really be it solely to play MLB the Show. Maybe one day I will do that again because I did enjoy, uh, I think it was MVP 04. I had a blast with that, especially with some of the retro parts that you could go there. They couldn't even call it Ebbets Field. It was weird. They called it Retro Dodger. But anyway, um, I'd, I'd like to go to the, uh, the questions that we got from, uh, from uh, Twitter, and let's also kind of group that together, Mike, with the, um, uh, the retirement, the, the re, uh, retiring of the uh, uniform numbers. But uh, I'll go to, go to you, Mike, since um, uh, you are the one who threw these uh, the, the, out to the Twitterverse about uh, asking questions. Go ahead. All right, gentlemen. We have two questions from Jeff Cohen 
On Twitter, he's JLC1962-2000. First of two questions. If the Universal DH is going to be used this season because of the proposed radical alignment for 2020, do you guys think it will be implemented in the National League in 2021? Uh, I think if you do it, and you know they've been talking about 2021, 2022. Um, I would still have. I would. Lo- I would rather a season to mourn it. So I don't. Th- I, I think that the fervor would be so that they they'd have to. I, I I think either the fervor would be such that they either need one more season or it would just never happen because everybody wants it that way. Rich. Well, I think it would be the first step in that direction to having the DH permanently. And I think, well, with the upcoming labor contract, you're hearing a lot of the um, the rhetoric now. I know a couple of the Mets players actually have said, well, you know, we're willing to do what we have to do. You know, if we have to go on strike, you know, you've heard some of that, and you're hearing more and more of it. And something big is going to have to happen to keep labor peace. And if the DH is, it may just have to be the DH because it's, you know, another high-paying job. That's what the union wants. Um, so I think if they did it this year, I think we get one major step closer to universal implementation. Uh, it'll be harder, you know, if they could say, hey, we did it here. It, it's a big part of labor piece. We're going to have to do this. So I think it would be a very unfortunate thing because, believe me, I would rather try anything than a universal DH. I, I would I would expand the rosters. If you could do the math and say the players' union, you know, if we add three more players to to the rosters, you're making more than if you had one DH on average. So can you go for that? I just I hate I hate the DH rule with a passion. Um, I don't like the fact that the leagues play differently. I don't like that. Um, in my pecking order, expand the rosters to appease the union. Um, get rid of the DH in both leagues. That's the first choice. Second choice, maintain status quo. Third choice, as I vomit, is have a universal DH. But I do think if they did it this year in the abridged-slash-modified season, it would be one step closer to that, unfortunately. I have no interest in the DH as a National League fan, but it's being force-fed. Uh, I think we have no choice. Ultimately, they're going to shove it down our throats, and both leagues will be implementing ABH. Uh, I don't think we have any choice. So, ultimately, we're going to have to get used to it. Not happy about it. Jeff's second question, and it's a two-parter. Gentlemen, what is the Mets' best defensive play? And Jeff says his is the Andy Chavez catch. The second part to his question is, what is the worst offensive Mets play? His is Timo Perez in the World Series. So, Sam, back to you. Um, well, just first of all, I thought you said uh, earlier, I just have to throw this out there, uh, worst defensive was Timo Perez, and that's when I asked you what play was that, and you said when he was rounding the bases, and you clarified for me exactly what we were talking about. But my response was the worst defensive play, and I just want to throw that out there, Murphy. But that's just me tangenting real quick. Daniel Murphy in the 2015 World Series, definitely the worst defensive play. I won't even go round robin there for for that. Um, 
so I think the best the best defensive play still in my mind it 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 may have to be Tommy Agee's you know double catch performance in the World Series. I mean that saved so many runs. Uh, like I'm I'm going all the way back there because I just I I think that was so momentous for for that team to be winning that World Series and there were so many different little moments that you can you can you know uh, point to. That, that could even include Ron Swoboda's uh, single catch, but, you know, a run still scored on that play. I think that he, he uh, I think Tommy Agee, with the amount of runs he saved, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe those are two different games, uh, but, but somebody with a better historical background might be able to answer that. Um, uh, before we move on, Mike, do you know, it, it was that one was game three and the other was game four, correct? Ron Swoboda's was game four? Uh, I believe you were correct. You know, okay. of course, I could be wrong, but I believe you're correct. I, yeah, the, I believe the AG catch, do you know? Yeah, the AG catches right. were both in game three and Bodas was game four. You're right. Excellent. Okay, um, perfect. So, yeah, Rich, go ahead. So, so Rich, I'll just, I'll just ask the question again. The best defensive Mets play and the worst offensive Mets, Mets play. So I have um, some different thoughts on that. So I, I can't do the Andy catch. I can't because to me, if you want to say the most athletic catch, maybe the Andy catch, certainly getting to the wall, fully extended over, pulling it back, all of that. But to me, you can't strip context out of that. They lost the game. I mean, and I know Andy made the catch and all of that, but it, the context matters, which is why I think the AG catches, particularly the first one, I'm, I'm going to basically put a ditto to what Sam just said. The Mets were it was one-to-one in the series, right? The Mets were ahead in that game in game three, and AG, the, especially the first catch, the Orioles were the, were the heavy favorite. They were, they were Goliath, and the Mets had them on the run a little bit. And if, the, or, if that ball drops, the Orioles, I believe, would have taken the lead in the game. It would have been a huge momentum swing, and Goliath would have been awakened, and he might have beaten the living crap out of David at that point. But what A.G. did was fully, you know, fully athletic, fully extended, basket catch, you know, going, going to the uh, right center field gap, um, and stomped on them right there. You know, great catch athletically, absolutely. Maybe a tick below the athletic of Endy's, maybe. But what it meant in that game, absolutely the best catch in in the history of the Mets because it it gave them that World Series. It it kept the momentum in the Mets' side. The worst offensive play, you know, I say this with a smile and pain at the same time, like the tears of a clown, uh, to me was when 2006 NLCS against Cardinals, Game 7, bottom of the ninth, Mets down two runs. First and second, no outs. They send Cliff Floyd to the plate. Okay, Cliff Floyd, if we remember, had an Achilles issue. He could barely walk to the plate. If you remember this, he limped all the way to the plate. He should not have been in that batter's box, and he struck out. I mean, he he basically, and to me, that started. That was the beginning of the end of that rally. Cliff Floyd did not belong on that field. Um, and if he if he hit the ball on the ground, a double play would have been a good outcome. It could have been a triple play because he wasn't going to make it to first base. And what the hell they were thinking in that moment, I have no idea. No idea sending a man who can't walk 
when your season's on the line to the plate, when you have a rally in the bottom of the ninth and you're losing the game. So to me, that was the worst offensive play. Sending him up there and watching him strike out and begin to take the starts out of that inning when there was no good outcome. There was no good outcome. He, he wasn't swinging the bat normally. He wasn't going to hit the ball over the fence. I have no idea what they were thinking. It drove me insane. If you remember, Chris Woodward was available, and you could have had him bunt. Woodward was a very good bunter. You could have bunted the runners to second and third you know, and had the tying run to bat or whatever. Anything but Cliff Lloyd in that spot. That's mine. Uh, and, Mike, before you continue, uh, I'll say what the uh, the worst offensive play um, – and, and, you know, he's one of my favorite players, and it's unfortunate that he wasn't even able to show how he could be a manager. But I, I hear where you're coming from with that, but I think you still have to give the called third strike the worst offensive play just from the psychology of it because, also, I think the, juxtapo- the juxtaposition there is Mookie's play, Mookie's offensive play in Game 6 of the World Series, the fact that he kept fouling it off and fouling it off and fouling it off. And I think that is one of the main issues for Met fans, is the fact that Beltron didn't get any wood on the ball at any point. Um, and I think because of, of the knowing what Mookie had done 20 years earlier, um, knowing that, that, I mean, if you ever watch that at bat, you know, it, it, it's, he fouls it off a few times before he has to get out of the way, which is the biggest play in that at bat. Forget about, forget about even uh, Buckner play. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly Mookie getting out of the way, but, but he had to foul it off a few times after that, and he just kept fouling it off and fouling it off and fouling it off, which is a split-second moment, a split-second decision, but he still was able to keep the at-bat alive. That and because that is probably you could argue the best offensive play in Mets history, because of the way it eventually gave them that World Series. Um, I, I, I think you have to say the juxtaposition is Beltron keeping his his at bat on the uh, his bat on the shoulders. Um, so that's my call. Even though I, I still think he gets too much crap for it, <laughs> because he's still one of the greatest players to have ever been a Met. Oh, that still hurts. Oh boy. Uh, as far as catch, I, I Rusty Staub's catch in Game Four of the NLCS against the Reds always stands out. Uh, smashed himself into the wall. Great catch, Rusty Staub. Uh, that that one sticks out. Rich, you you know what I'm talking about. Uh, oh yeah. As far as, as far as worst offensive play. Uh, you know, does batting out of turn, you know, the great lineup gap, does that qualify? Otherwise, I'm going to have a little fun. I'm going to get, you know, out of context here. And I would say uh, the worst offensive play might have been Anna Benson saying she'd sleep with the team if she ever caught a husband cheating on her. Boop, boop. That was an offensive. Next, offensive indeed. All right, next question is from Big Red Ruckus. Uh, what is the current financial situation of the Wilpon Cats Syndicate? How many more years of Jeffy will we enjoy? I'll answer that one very quickly. Uh, their financial situation. Rewind, 2015, there was a report in Forbes and the Post 
saying that the Mets had refinanced all their debt to the tune of uh, nearly $700 million, and that was supposed to be uh, paid off within five years. Five years later, in December, Forbes issued a an article and said that they were $350 million in debt. So that's the direct answer. Uh, there's a paper trail when you consider uh, when Fred Wilpon attempted his uh, stock buyback, he received a valuation that was uh, 700000 excuse me, yeah, 700000 uh, whatever, so less than what he was expecting. And then a couple of years ago, if you remember that mysterious $20 million that, you know, mysteriously disappeared from their opening day payroll, that was because the year prior – uh, they benefited from $20 million in the bonds related to City Field uh, in pilot payments, uh, payments in lieu of taxes. So they had an extra $20 million to play with, and the next year they didn't because that wasn't, you know, money that they were expecting to realize. So there's a paper trail out there, and, you know, as it stands, they're $350 million in debt, uh, having a hard time operating, you know, under those circumstances. Uh, how many more years of Jeffy will we enjoy? Guys, get to speculate, Rich. Well, well, the only thing I can point to, Mike, is an article that came out I read two days ago, maybe, that um, the value of the Mets is now projected to be a lot less than what the Wilpons want for the Mets. So, um, so what that means is, you know, it's like selling your house, right? I mean, if your house is worth. 300,000 enlisted for four, you're probably going to have that house on your hands for a while. And so, and if they're in so much debt, they probably have to get, you know, the price they want, probably have to get an overvalue bid, which may and may not happen. And so, um, short answer is unless the Wilpons are willing to take in a, a pretty good financial bath and sell the team for what it's worth, from what I read, which they don't, they don't seem to be willing to do. We may have Jeff Wolpon for a couple more years uh, while they try to pay down some of that debt and, you know, get out from being underwater. So it's a scary thought, but um, we may have him for another two or three years. You know, it's it's really um, – it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. And at the same time, like, like it, it, very, it is very Metzian – that the idea that I mean, how much did the the Marlins sell for, Mike? I'm sorry, repeat that. How much did the Marlins sell for? Oh, uh, a lot of money. Uh, 2.1. So 2.1 billion dollars. The Mets, a New York franchise, rich should should certainly be worth more than what the Marlins sold for. And yet, because of the way they've gone about this, and now because of coronavirus, you could even say. Uh, because every, you know, rents are probably going to be down, uh, uh, houses are going to be down, you know, ownership, you know, property and uh, value is probably going to go down because of all of this. So uh, it, it isn't very Metzian when you think that they may have to settle for under $2 billion? If they ever sold for less than the Marlins, could you imagine the late night comedy show humor? Oh, my God. Yeah. And they, I, I don't think they would ever do it because they probably can't, right, Mike? I mean, they probably can't accept that price. Well, you know what? 
they better reconsider what it is they're doing. They had a golden opportunity to make a transaction, not once, but twice. Uh, and <laughs> here we are, they're still in control of the team. Oh, man. Well, uh, Mike, do we have any other questions? Absolutely. We've got a couple. Uh, again, from Big Red Ruckus, and we love you, Big Red. Uh, will the rest of the league catch up to Pete Alonzo, Sam? Ooh, um, I I really have a faith, a lot of faith, that Pete Alonzo is a rather smart fellow, that he's a rather good ball player and astute ball player, and that he is going going to continue to make adjustments to whatever adjustments get made to him. Rich? I say yes, the league will catch up to him. Um, and that, that's not to suggest that he won't adjust back. But I think if this were, a, let's, whenever there is a real full season, I wouldn't be surprised to see his next season be about nah, 42 home runs, maybe 250. You know, because it happens. I mean, th- these guys are major league pitchers. They're studying him, and and he may have a down year, quote unquote down year. Uh, but then he'll rebound, you know, because Pete, like Sam said, Pete works really hard, you know, and, and he has, and he'll he'll catch up back. But uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's unlikely to think that he's just going to keep taking off. The league's going to catch up to him. He's going to have to adjust back. He did a good job last season, you know. Uh, pitches adjusted, he readjusted, and it was a game of ping pong. And, man, he put together a hell of a season. Let's see what the future holds. Next question, and I'm going to stay in order because Big Red had another one. But for the moment, Max Cohn comes in, at Max Cohn 2040 on Twitter. Was the 2019 season a failure? Rich? No. Anytime you make progress, it's not a failure. Um, only one team is going to win the World Series. So you, 29 other teams did not have a failure of a season. The Mets made enormous progress. The emergence of Pete Alonso, the emergence of Jeff McNeil, all those things, um, they made progress in the standings and all of that. So, no, it, it's a failure, absolutely not. Agreed. And I, I, uh, I'd have to agree as well. Um, and I think you have to put the cherry on top of that is that part of whatever failures that were in 2019, even if the season overall wasn't a failure, was that Mickey Calloway is not currently the manager whenever we resume baseball. Um, and I think uh, that, is, that, that is certainly progress as well, I believe. I, I really, truly believe uh, maybe if we want to extend, uh, expand on this uh, uh, before we move on to the next question, um, that that is going to be a major improvement one way or the other. Be, you know, because what have we what we have talked about regarding Louis Rojas, uh, which is obviously you know a, a, a happy mistake currently, um, as far as as we can tell, and as far as what we uh, the three of us do seem to project when it comes to optimistic. Uh, takes about Louis Rojas, but um, yeah, you have to look at that part as part of the the it, it, the failure of 2019. It, it makes it a success in many ways. Rich, no, I, I agree. I think um, you know they they progress in a lot of different ways. Mickey, you know, nice guy, but he, he wasn't the right fit, and he's gone. Hopefully, Louis Rojas is the right guy, and things are, you know, you know players are emerging. You know, Brandon Nimmo is going to keep getting better, too. I mean, it, it's it definitely – you can't call the 1984 season that the Mets had in the 85 season failures. They didn't win, but they were progressing toward a World Series that they did win. So, yeah, I believe in stepping stones. I'm with you guys. It was an improvement, not a failure. 
Uh, last question, going, getting back to Big Red Ruckus. He asks, in the beginning of the 2019 season, Jeff McNeil hit for a very high average at the end of the season for more power. What's it going to be for 2020? Um, I I think that he's going to keep that power, but probably hit for more of a 300 average, which I will take. I mean, you know, I I, I do think that it, it was nice, and, and and the fact that we know it is in him to be able to hit for you know Ty Cobb type numbers, but Rich, I would take 325 home runs from from a, a second baseman, a utility player, really. I would too, but but you know you, you hit on something. Big Red hits on something that's a bit of a concern of mine um, about McNeil is that for his first solid season, right, July of eighteen, basically till July of nineteen, he was the leadoff hitter that you want. You know, guy who puts the ball in play, all fields, all that stuff. You know, three thirty-ish hitter, great. Then his his mix started to change. Power went up, average went down. I'm a little bit concerned about that because, you know, you remember the old days of, of guys like Len Dykstra and, and um, guys who would get enamored of power, guys who weren't really power hitters. I'm talking Len Dykstra as a Met, not the steroid Len Dykstra. Um, you know, Davey would always criticize him for trying to pull everything and, and not being the hitter he is. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned that with McNeil, he may try to become or become infatuated with the long ball that's probably not his game. Um, it really hasn't been throughout his career. I, I'd rather see him hit 330 with 15 home runs than 290 with 25. And I'd rather have him at the top of my lineup with a, you know, what we call it a 320 batting average, give me a, you know, 380 on base percentage, close 400. I'd much rather have that player. That's the player the Mets need. And I'm just concerned. We've all seen it with players in the past who, aren't necessarily home run hitters. They start jacking a few, and then their swing gets long, like Keith would say, their swing gets long, they get out of their game, and they screw themselves up. So I am a bit concerned about that. Very interesting. You know, I, uh, no, I, I, I was going to – no, I was just going to say that one of the things I, I noticed and remembered when seeing the, uh, the lineup on the show – was the fact that Jeff McNeil led off and Pete Alonso was number two um, and how important that tandem is because having Pete Alonso number two, I actually wholeheartedly agree with it, no matter what the power is, because I think it elongates the lineup. And especially now, I mean, I, it, it looks like now, you know, we're talking about maybe having the season, not having the season, you want it, it, that that's, you know, we've seen the swan song of him as a Met already. Um, but one way or the other, whether Cespedes is in that lineup or not, you know, you're talking um, an extended lineup with Pete Alonso, with Jeff McNeil number one and Pete Alonso number two. So that's very, very important to the success of this ball team. There you go. That's a wrap on the questions. I want to thank our Twitter friends. Thank you very much for chiming in. And we, we did want to uh, touch on the potential that uh, things will be a little lax, uh, uh, laxed up about the, the uniform numbers uh, being retired by the New York Mets. And, uh, Mike, um, before we get to our uh, questions about it, we did have somebody respond uh, regarding 
this, and it was uh, Michael Negron, I believe. Is that uh, Mike? Uh, since uh, you have a little background here, um, is that how you would pronounce that, Negron? Negron, yeah. Okay, good. Um, uh, he chimed in about the retiring. You know, if they were to be retiring more numbers, um, he first says fifty in honor of the beautiful state. Uh, oh, by the way, he is at. Michael Negron II, uh, and that is without the O in, in uh, Negron. Um, 50 in honor of uh, the beautiful state of Hawaiian, uh, Hawaii and Sid Fernandez. No one else can wear it, and then he puts a flower as an emoji. Seriously, 36 and 15. Coos and Grody were key to 1969 championships, and Grody brought out best from entire pitching staff and was best defensive catcher in Mets history. I'll, I'll go to you first, Rich, before... I uh, say what I think about these retiring numbers. About which ones to retire? Um, well, I yeah, thought, and you know, also if you want to follow, if you wanted to follow up with uh, what uh, Mr. Negron had to say about Kuzman and, and Grody. Um, so Kuzman, yeah, why not? I mean, um, you know, he. Very solid. You know, he was a very big part of, of the 69. He was on the mound when they, when they won it in 69. Very big part of 73. Long time as a Met. Um, sure. I, I, I can get comfortable with retiring Jerry Kuzman's number 36. Um, you know, Grody number 15, no. I mean, he, just, he was an outstanding defensive catcher, but just not enough of an impact player um, to warrant retiring his number. Then you, know, then you see some others. Um, and I've seen these thrown around on Twitter. The whole idea of, of retiring, uh, well, Gary Carter's number probably, you know, is retired. Um, Keith Hernandez, I would retire 17, and you know, Jose Lima wore it, and uh, Day Sung Koo wore it. Uh, I don't understand why. Keith Hernandez is an iconic member of this franchise. And, um, you know, he was acquiring Keith Hernandez on June 15, 1983, was the beginning of the turnaround for this organization. Uh, that rode them through, you know, they, I think they had the most wins. In fact, I'm sure they did of any team in, in baseball in the 80s. So that was a lot of Keith right there. And so how they haven't retired that number yet is just ponderous to me. So I, I think Keith's number should be retired. Um, and, you know, I'm a little stingy with retired numbers. I, you know, I think the Yankees are, are over the top. You know, no, no player there can wear a single-digit number right now because we're all retired. And um, and I think you have to be a bit stingy and make it very prestigious. So I would add Keith for sure. Um, I would, you know, Kuzman, I think, yeah, 36. And I that's about where I draw the line at this point. David Wright, of course, you know, when his time comes, number five, she retired. Uh, but that's about it. You know, I'm not going to start, you know, doing the Yankee thing and pulling everybody out and saying, I think I have to keep your standards very, very high. And, and keep it fairly limited. You know, the Mets are at what now? 14, 41, 37, 8. Um, and then I think they should retire 17, 36, and, uh, and 5. And I, and I think that's good. I think that's, you know, for a franchise that's been in existence 58 years, um, I think that's good. I don't think you have to go much farther than that. And eventually 48 should be retired. I, I think I want to expand a little bit on number eight. Um, 
right now at this point it basically is retired like you just said so you know and mike you and i were talking about this earlier you might as well just make it official you know especially just what he meant for you know obviously in many ways what you're talking about with keith hernandez what gary carter meant for that team um and you know for i think it would be an improper posthumous honor and especially since nobody has worn it uh, especially since his death and i can't even recall uh, who the last person to ever wear number eight was, and I'm sure I can go to the list right now, and 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 uh, you know the the uniform number database will have it for us. But uh, I think you know you might as well just go there uh, with that instead of just have these unofficial retired retired numbers that you know that they they took out of uh, circulation when it came to Willie Mays when Robinson Cano came uh, aboard. Um, but I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Mike. That's that's uh, really what I wanted to hit on. I'm agreeable to number eight. Uh, you do it for Carter, and you do it for Yogi as well. He was part of the organization, played an important role, got the team to the National League Championship, and the team was still very young in its history, you know? Uh, so why not? I'm agreeable to that. Uh, I'm in lockstep with Rich with regards to number 17. Uh, man was so important to this organization in so many different ways. Uh, you know, David Wright will more, more than most likely get his number retired along the way. And I would stop there. I'm hesitant to, you know, uh, retire 18 and 16. Uh, and I have a personal thing, you know. Uh, I would like to see number 45 retired, Tug McGraw. Sometimes you make exceptions. I think and, that's a uh, big, uh, solid argument with Tug, Mike, for sure. Sometimes, sometimes you make exceptions. You know, he, he was an important part, two National League champions and a World Series champion. Uh, and his passing, you know, if anything, should have uh, put an exclamation point on on his value to this organization. Uh, so I, I would make the exception and, and retire Tug McGraw, but that's me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the this is a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. Uh, you have been listening to the 50th edition. We so thank you for doing so, and we hope that all of you and your families are healthy and well. Um, before we, I, I did want to touch a little bit on uh, uh, Jackie Robinson, April 15th, but I want to talk about uh, the Mets players to wear number 50 before we reach, we reach the 90 minute mark. Um, Rich, I'll go to you first. Uh, and, and since you know we we uh, uh, mentioned, you know, we we, uh, we we were talking about the tweet uh, from uh, Mr. Negron. Uh, he mentioned Sid Fernandez, and I, I have to say that he certainly takes number fifty. You know, when you're looking at this list, although it, there, there are uh, there are, there are less on this list than we normally talk about, which is a good thing. Uh, but it's it's it, you basically have, I would say, two to three names that really stand out. You do. You have Sid, and um, what more can you say about Sid? Uh, 86 World Series. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be at Game 7 and watching him come in the bull- out of the bullpen. Remember, folks, Mets were losing that game 3 to nothing, and um, right. Sid held the line right there. Uh, he was lights out and gave the Mets offense a chance, and my God, if he didn't do that, if, he let, if whoever came in, let in some more runs and they didn't win that world, oh, my God, I can't even think about that. All right, so, so Sid. Um, 
And that was a heist. They got Sid for, I believe they got him for Bob Baylor and Carlos Diaz, who was a reliever. And Bob Baylor, who was a wonderful utility player, kind of like Joe McEwing before Joe McEwing. But, but you know, the Mets got a hell of a value back in Sid. So there's Sid. And he can hell of a hitter, too, by the way. Um, and then, you know, you think about some other people who have worn the number. It's really Benny Agbayani. How can you forget Benny? Um, game three against the Giants in the 2000 playoffs ends it with a walk-off. So Benny, also from Hawaii. Duaner Sanchez, I think we talked about him last week. Um, infamous, uh, so Duaner Sanchez. And, um, you know, and, and Rafael Montero, boy. Uh, the only, you can't say the name Rafael Montero without saying Jacob deGrom. Does anybody say those two names, one without the other? They came up right. at the same time. On the same day in 2014, and and Degrom was supposed to be the mop-up guy, you know, who was going to be in the bullpen, and you know, nice nice guy with long hair. Okay, fine. And Rafael Montero, though, this guy, this guy is the next Pedro Martinez. You know, oh wait till you see this guy. And well, how about that, huh? Rafael Montero uh, turned out to be um, kind of an afterthought, and thank God we have Jacob Degrom. That's number 50 for me. That is remarkable. And, you know, looking at how long Rafael Montero was on this team, with so many people being like, why haven't you cut him already? 5-14-2014 to 10-1-2017, he wore number 50. Um, you know, it, I'm sure he's a good kid, but unfortunately it just wasn't meant to be. Um, Mike, before I pass it along to you, got to say with Benny Agbayani, always one of one of my favorites on that era. He was just a, a – he was constantly smiling and, and had some key uh, memories to, to, to bring to the, the Mets. It, it was really uh, excellent. And Papa Atchison, Scott Atchison, you know, just one of those relievers that they tried to market as one of the reasons they're going to turn things around in 2013. That, so it's funny to see that name. Uh, and Sean Green, which who was a reliever at the time, I believe, is also one of those names, 2009, 2010. Um, and if you guys, be, be, before you – uh, go deep if, uh, into uh, number 50. If you guys, and start with you, Mike, could elaborate on who Phil Cabaretta is. Phil Cabaretta? I remember him as a coach. Yeah. So, go ahead, Rich. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Phil Cabaretta, I remember him as a coach. That's all I could say. Phil Cabaretta. Okay, yeah, that's so, all okay. I remember. I mean, I, I know it's our own play, but yeah, I remember as a, as a Met coach. Yeah, for 1975, 76, 77, all of those seasons, he was he was number 50. But uh, go ahead, Mike. Uh, let me see. You know, again, like Rich says, Rafael Montero, uh, Rafael Montero uh, more proof that prospects are no guarantee. Uh, Duana Sanchez gets hungry in the middle of the night, and, you know, we get stuck with Aaron Heilman and the rest of his history. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, Benny Agbayani, you know, his name is forever etched in Mets history. Such a likable guy, uh, like you say, Sam. And Sid Fernandez, man, he was good. He really was with that kind of like quirky uphill motion that he had. Real baffling to hitters. Uh, some of those nights of, you know, eight, nine, ten strikeouts were quite remarkable and, and so enjoyable during that era. And Ed Lynch, even though he only wore the number one year, and I didn't even know that in 1980. Uh, Ed Lynch, who will probably go down as one of the most underrated Met pitchers in their history. 
And ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to the 50th edition of a Metzian podcast, and we are so thankful that you have been doing so. Um, we, we want to touch re- real quick, since there's not going to be games where everybody's wearing number 42, uh, before we get to our last word, uh, you know, we were talking about a little bit earlier, Jackie Robinson, that one moment in time, why these games are so important. Um, it, it's, it's crazy. I, I believe we're going to be celebrating, uh, if I do my math correctly, the 73rd anniversary, Mike, of that day, which apparently was a very overcast, cool day to be at the ballpark. Uh, if that was the weather, cast, weather forecast, I, I, I believe you on that one. But uh, what, what can you say? Uh, this man stood alone. Uh, in the face of a lot uh, of adversity. Uh, You know, you might call him the cornerstone of the civil rights movement just because of what he went through, stood for, and how he conducted himself uh, and how he transformed the rhetoric. Uh, Let us not forget that, and I learned this today uh, in the great story that you know, uh, President Kennedy at the time he squashed he squashed some uh, civil rights legislation, sent it back, uh, and Jackie Robinson took issue with that and, and openly promoted Nixon for president. Uh, took the Republican side, abandoned the Democratic side over that particular issue. So you might say he sort of tenderized the landscape and, and you know provided let's say, an an open for Martin Luther King. Like I say, Jackie stood alone uh, and and did it with such dignity and grace. Uh, And as an American, as a veteran, as a man and a husband, again, uh, helped transform a nation. Rich, uh, you brought it up earlier as well. Uh, you know, it, it's remarkable how many years it's, that has gone by, and we're still talking about it. And, of course, you know, it's it's not just a baseball game that we're talking about. We're talking about something that mattered on a very fun, uh, fundamental scale to American society. Absolutely. And the other – how about two weeks ago? I watched the movie 42 for the third time. And um, if folks haven't seen that, please do. And please understand what this guy went through. Um, and, um, you know, just unbelievable stuff. And it was transformative. Like, there, there aren't many things you could say that happen that are transformative. There are some. There are some events. You know, there are some people. But he's in a very small group of events and people who literally for the the United States, perhaps the world, but the United States, a transformative figure. Um, And, you know, sure, it it happened in the context of of a game, right, a silly game that we spend so much of our time talking about and worrying about. But, okay, it happened in that context, but the impact it had, like Mike said, or like you both said, um, it went way beyond baseball. It, it, it cut new ground. It was to be really the the jump start of the civil rights movement. It really jump started it and um, raised social consciousness. All these things, 
And and I think now, you know, now that we're so many years later, people might forget. And, and watch the movie. You know, you, you need baseball, right? We all, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening because you miss baseball. Watch 42. Just watch it again. If, you, if you've seen it once, if you haven't, watch it. And see what this guy went through and how the most important part was he was implored by Branch Rickey and by everybody, don't fight back because that's what they want. They want you to fight back so they can say, you know, you're a fighter and you're a troublemaker and you're this and you're that. Um, and, and the fact that he had to bite his tongue and he was thrown at, he had pitches thrown at him, he was spiked, he was brutally attacked verbally, you know, by, by players, by fans. The Dodgers couldn't stay in this hotel or that hotel. Just let that sink in. Let Just let that sink in, that one guy put up with all that. So, yeah, that would be a great way, because they all can't wear 15 this week, because, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, 42, I said 15, I'm sorry. They all can't wear 42 this week for obvious reasons. If you need a little baseball fix and you want a nice little history lesson, sit yourself down and watch the movie 42 again, and, and just just – let that sink in. Imagine if that were you in that situation. I also want to give a shout-out to uh, somebody who uh, luckily is still with us, and she will be celebrating her 98th birthday this coming July, and that is Rachel Robinson, the uh, the wife of Jackie Robinson, who also had to endure a lot, endure a lot uh, during all this ordeal. Um, and she, she had a child at the time, and I, I think I remember something along the lines that, that she couldn't bring her child that day or, or she did bring her child and it was very bundled up and there were, there were other wives who were helping her with uh, uh, making sure the child was, was taken care of. Um, but but I, I could be, I, I need to adjust uh, my knowledge of this, uh, especially as we don't have any baseball to watch and I uh, certainly need to go uh, in depth since I also have a lot of studying to do on that uh, little shameless plug there for Bedford and Sullivan, the story of Brooklyn and its Dodgers. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we wish uh, good, happy uh, health to Rachel Robinson, and, and everybody has uh, the Robinson family in their thoughts uh, this April 15th, and, and thank them any way you can for what they dealt with during that period to help bring civil rights to this country. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you for listening to a Methian podcast. We are on to our last word. Uh, I will go to you first, Mike. What is your last word on Just April 12th? Just hang in there, you know. Uh, let's get through this. I'm going to keep it simple. Just hang in there. Let's get through this. And uh, one thing at a time, you know. As I always say, haste makes waste. So let's go about our business smartly. Thank you. Rich? I have nothing to add. Same as what Mike said. Um, hang in there. Do what you have to do. The only way we're going to stop this thing or control it is by doing your part. You all know what you have to do. We all want baseball, but we can't rush it back nor anything else. So hang in there, do the right thing, and let's all work together. My last word it won't be any noise at all. Just listen right now. You hear that? And if the answer is nothing, that is the sound of silence in Manhattan. Um, one way or the other, this is a surreal situation, but I want everybody out there to make the most of it. Understand that we need to get through this together. 
Uh, we will get through this together. But, you know, take a moment, you know, enjoy your surroundings, take in life uh, and, and, and stop because a lot of us don't do that all that often. So whatever type of reality you have right now, um, you know, and, and, and it, not everybody can always make the most of it, but somehow, some way, make the most of it. And, and the only way to end this podcast is how we always end this podcast. Let's go Mets. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Rich, Mike, always a pleasure. We'll catch you, uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night.